Hello, welcome to Going Off Track. I'm Joe. Willkommen. What? I said Willkommen. That's for, that's for one of our German fans who's always saying that I, I my German is terrible. <laughs> oh yeah. Um, but say it again. Willkommen. Yeah, write us, tweet at us, let us know how bad that was. <laughs> Sounded okay to me. Please, bitte, as they would say. Dude, um, I feel like it's been a thousand years since I've been in here. It's been a while. Yeah, so we just did a podcast with Steven, Virtual Steven. It was great. And now um, we're still hanging out, so we figured we would intro this episode today with Sam Cohen. Dude, I seriously, the, one, this episode is awesome, and I just have to take a moment to, to uh, just... Um, Toot the horns of Mr. Jonah Bear and and Mr. Brad Goop, who, like, due to my my parenting circumstances, which are awesome, uh, I don't get to come in and do the podcast anymore, and I miss it terribly. But Jonah and Brad have hooked up this fun Skype thing, and Brad makes it sound perfect. So, but you guys are just nailing it, man. Like, like it's really cool to hear. Well, thank you. That's very kind of you. Yeah, it's fun to do. I mean, I, I talk about this all the time, like. You don't get to have conversations with people for like an hour when you're not checking your phone or distracted. So I, I just like I like doing it. Also gets me out of my apartment during the day, which is very important. I mean, that's really the main reason. Yeah. And today even got me up early. I've been on like the craziest sleep cycle. And I I think it's from like I went to SNL three weeks in a row, which is like I know no one's going to feel any sympathy for me about that. But it was like I've been can't go to bed before four and I've been waking up at like noon and I finally today, because of this, I woke up at like nine, I meditated, I'm hoping like I can finally, today I feel like I'm finally getting back on a regular schedule. Very nice. I, I went for, because of your horrible influence, um, my second power flow hot yoga. And um, uh, I've come to this conclusion that there will be no kind of exercise that I enjoy, that taking care of my body is something to be endured not unlike going to the dentist or the theater of Antonin Artaud, for you nerds out there. Um, it's like a trial. I am so, I went last week, I couldn't move my arms for two days. I was so damn sore. Today, I feel sick. And I'm in a room like that's steam filled, trying to do poses that I know I've done enough yoga that, you know, they can say what you want to do and I can, I can attempt to do them. But my God. It's rough, and it's. I keep telling myself it's a practice. You will get better, but I'm only doing this so that I can stay alive for my children. That's it. Yeah, it's good, man. I'm glad you're doing it, and it's. Um, yeah, I really miss it. I've been in physical therapy, but I'm hoping to get back. Get back. Yeah, on your the mat your soon. Gibson guitar snapped your back. I was yeah I was yeah I was just talking to our guest today about he had like custom insoles and I was like I should get those I was like ugh now all I'm talking about is like insoles and like my injuries I don't know how this happened Ah uh, um, you're 35 I'm 35 but today's <laughs> guest Sam Cohen I met when we talked about on the podcast I met this guy when I was 17 and we did a summer program at Berkeley College of Music together a Holy five, shit five week summer program and Sam was in the program with this guy, Jesse, and they went on to form this band, Apollo Sunshine, um, who are amazing. My, our friend John Cheese worked for them for a long time. And, uh, Good dude. Then Sam went on to play in the band Yellowbirds, and um, he was playing in the subway for a while, solo, and uh, now he's has his solo career, and he's a full-time session musician. And he's also one of the most talented guitar players I've I've ever seen in my life. He plays... 
lap steel, electric guitar, but so so versatile. He's when I watch Sam play, he's sort of like I was like, oh, we both went to this thing when we were seventeen, and then Sam continued to practice really hard and play, <laughs> and I got into like hardcore and weed or whatever. Like I feel like Sam is <laughs> is like the example of if I had really applied myself to guitar. So and, um, and you can play guitar, so that's that's saying I can a lot play of guitar, kind of people. But, I know I know these people, and I hate them. Yes, but I mean, he, yeah, Sam is just an incredible musician, and he has a new record out. This is his first solo record. It's called Cool It, and it just came out on Easy Sound. And um, he's torn around. He's uh, man, he's a super nice dude, but yeah, incredibly talented. And and we weren't really friends. We knew each other tangentially when we were teenagers, but um. Yeah, it's cool to meet someone, you know, like 15, 20 years down the road and see them kind of succeeding in music. It's pretty inspiring. I think that's awesome. Now, before we get to Seth, I want to I want to bring up something that we're, we want to try with with our awesome listeners, because, you know, we keep track of how many people listen to the show and, and we're stoked to have all of you do it. And we're doing we're doing pretty well. But I want to rip off something I heard from uh, Dan Carlin's Hardcore History podcast. Awesome podcast. Um, it's so good. It's ridiculous. It's so good. It's like. I need to drive somewhere for four hours. Like, what can I do so I can listen to his podcast? They're so great. But he does this thing that I'm sure other podcasts do as well, where it's a dollar a podcast. So if you listen to our podcast week to week and you like it, just go to our website, goingofftrack.com, go to that donate button, send a buck, send a dollar. And it's it's something to uh, help us break even. Uh, Jonah does a lot of work for this podcast. Brad does a lot of work for this podcast. I stay home, but specifically it's just, I think it's cool. So a, a buck, a podcast. So if everybody listening to this right now, just sends us a dollar. That's pretty cool. It's also a dollar. <laughs> it buys you nothing. Yeah. Think about all the dumb dude. I, yeah, I waste a dollar on like, not waste a dollar, but you give a dollar to everyone. I feel like, especially these days, guys. Yeah, it's it's basically you just tipped us. That's it. Yes, that's true. Okay. So there you go. There you go. That's it for that. Um, and let's get into it with um, Sam Cohen. It's going on Tell me about it. <laughs> um, but yeah, here we are going off track. Sam Cohen. What's up, dude? Hey, how's it going, Jonah? Good. How are you? I'm excellent. We were just talking about how we met, um, Berkeley Guitar School. Mm-hmm. I was seventeen. I remember. I, was I guess they to... taught other instruments. Too. Yeah, but who cares, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I guess it was a it was like a five week workshop. Yeah, it was awesome. Up to that point in my life, I think that was the most fun I'd ever had in my life. I'd been like, you know, seventeen year old kid living in my parents' house, and then just got like dropped off in Boston. Yep. To... <laughs> and like no supervision or anything for five weeks. Yeah, we were like hitchhiking to festivals and it was awesome. Really? Yeah, we had a blast. I feel like I had a very different experience. Like it was my first time away from home, and I felt like me and my roommates would just like just eat cupcakes every. Like I felt <laughs> like we were so immature. Like I felt like everyone else was like partying and getting laid and stuff, and we were like, let's eat like a whole pizza. Like no one can tell us when to go to bed. <laughs> I guess there was that too. But I remember you because you were like kind of like had this kind of rockabilly thing and you had like like a big kind of hollow body or something like was it white or something? Yeah, I had a big white Gibson back then. (laughs) Wish I still had that guitar. So we had this summer and then you ended up staying at my house Mm -hmm. in Cleveland with John Cheese. And your roommate Chris. And my roommate Chris. 
and you were playing in Apollo Sunshine, and you met those guys actually that at the Berkeley thing. Met Jeremy at that summer program, yeah. Okay. And then he and I went to Berkeley, and then uh, we met Jesse through living in Boston. He'd like gone to Berkeley for a minute. Um, by the time I met him, he wasn't anymore. But it was that group of people that we met him through. So how soon after that summer thing did kind of Apollo Sunshine come together? Was it? It was still a few years. Okay. So I still had like a year of high school after that. So I went back to Houston, finished high school, made my first like weird rockabilly record. <laughs> and, then, um, and then moved to Boston and Jeremy did too. Uh, and then he and I started playing in bands right away, but we had one called Cash for a few years. We used to like tour the East Coast and do Mac Rock and stuff. And this was like the late 90s and early 2000s. Everything was like emo and pop punk. And we were like the band that did like a little bit extra guitar stuff and like yeah. melodic stuff. Uh, and, uh, yeah, and then as that was sort of like dissolving, our friend Jesse had started playing bass in the band, and then his band, Hill Valley, was dissolving, and that's when we started Apollo Sunshine. Okay, and Apollo Sunshine to me was like still at like one of my favorite bands to see live. Like everyone, all you guys are such incredible musicians. Thank you. And just like I remember just you playing like lap steel and then slide and like Jesse jumping around from keys to bass. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, I guess like. Where did you sort of feel like you guys, did you feel like you fit in anywhere or what? Because I always felt like, I felt, I don't, you know what I mean? I haven't reached a point in my career yet where I felt yeah. like I fit in uh, at all. Um, yeah, I've never, never knew what our scene was then and and still don't uh, now. But yeah, like I said, it was like a lot of, a lot of our friends were sort of more emo and pop right, punk right. back then. We weren't quite doing that. You know, we were like friends with Piebald and like they were doing really well. Um, and uh, yeah, I guess just like, it was a taste thing. Like I, when I met them, it was like, oh, you like The Who and Cornelius? I love The Who and Cornelius. <laughs> Let's start a band, you know? Yeah. But then like you guys would like be like, we're going to cover this Outcast song or whatever. And it was always like... I, 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 yeah, I mean, Jesse brought a lot of that, okay. that silliness that made yeah. it like so fun and, and made it kind of like go off the rails from time to time. Um, that was kind of like one of the best things about being in a band with him. It's like things were super unpredictable. Like he definitely a courageous performer. And you guys were a four-piece for a little while. Didn't you mm-hmm. have another dude... Yeah, our buddy Sean Aylward played in the band yeah. for like a year, maybe a year and a half, and was on the second record. Okay. And then towards the end, different people would come on tour with us. There was this percussion player, Ali, who would come out, and our friend Quentin Stoltzfus came and did some tours um, and like produced the last record with us. And John Cheese would sometimes dance with you guys on stage? <laughs> yeah. Am I remembering so, that right? So the, the earliest years were the best years of that band because <laughs> we had two people who toured with us. John Cheese, who's like our tour manager, and then um, our friend James Tracy, who was like our confidant. Our like uh, He was like the fourth Apollo Sunshine okay. at that time. He'd like pop up for an extra instrument on certain songs. Then and, uh, we had very like, very like... DIY light show going on back then. We had like strobe lights, and John and James would coordinate like turning off the house lights when James turns on the power strip on stage with the strobes, you know? Yeah, yeah. Like lots of fun stuff like that. And we just had a blast. It was like our first time traveling around, traveling around the country and 
It was so fun. You guys also had like like a school bus or something? Later. So we we okay. had a series of funny vans. We had like the first one was was like an ambulance transporter. And um I took it in for a repair at one point and it uh basically got condemned. They said I couldn't have it back. <laughs> Seriously? Yeah. I didn't know that could happen. I didn't either. <laughs> <laughs> and it just got locked up in a weird junkyard, and, like, we had to hop the fence to get our stuff out. It had a hole in the floor, like, you know, Flintstone style. You could For see real? the road go by. And like, if hole. you drop something, it's just gone? Yeah, yeah, if it were the size of a pin or <laughs> smaller. <laughs> but, uh, so, yeah, and in our, like, uh, in our innocent minds back then, I think we were we were like, what what is this scam? They just like took our van as if like right. there's that's anything but a burden to have to deal with that, you know, five thousand pounds of junk. And then the next one was an even taller ambulance transporter. We were like super into those and we put like hundreds of thousands of miles on that one, just like doing laps around the US. And then the third one we'd been talking to the piebald guys and Mike Parziel about vegetable oil and right. we got like Got into that idea, and uh, we were also at that point as a band where it's like, okay, maybe we need to get, like, a nicer van because, like, we're getting these junky things, and in, like, two years, they're, like, you know, toast. So we, like, and this was the worst decision ever. We got, like, a nicer, newer van, like, just a couple of years used and converted it to run on vegetable oil, and that just, like, totally killed that van. It just, really? like, yeah, it just didn't work out well. And then... I was so gung ho at that point. I was like, "No, nope, we're doing it again." I, I think so. I think we'd bought that van for like twenty thousand dollars, and then like only got like three thousand back for it. So it's like, "All right, well, we got these tours lined up. We got three thousand dollars, and bought a yellow short bus with like the real school bus door, right? Painted it blue and like did a wood interior with like benches and everything, and converted that to run on vegetable oil too." Because the logic was it needs to be a simpler engine without all the computer and all that okay. business for it to run right, you know? Right. So, like, we got an 89. Okay. And then that bad boy uh, was all right Okay. It, for a little while. And then, actually, the transmission went out on it twice. One time the transmission went out in the desert in Arizona. No way. Yeah, and we had to sleep in a junkyard. <laughs> and... um yeah, and then we got towed the next day, like, another 100 miles to Yuma, where this shop that was, like, had a race car team fix the transmission. And we rented a pickup truck and drove to Las Vegas to do a show and then came back and got our van. That's it was crazy. crazy that was the very end. That was the last tour. What? Not surprisingly. <laughs> so what was it sort of like, the, because my band had talked about doing the vegetable oil thing, and we were like... It seems like a lot of work driving around trying to find it, but it seems like you don't have to pay for gas, so they save so much money. Mm -hmm. Not the case. I, I mean, that was the I, that was the thinking for right. sure. But uh, when you actually got out there, it wasn't that way. I mean, first of all, it cost a lot to convert those vans, so so that'd be a lot of gas to make that back. I mean, we were touring enough that we'd spend you know sometimes five thousand dollars. This was the height of the gas prices too, so like you could spend five thousand dollars in a few months you know touring but uh but the other thing was the time investment it certainly wasn't worth the amount of time and yeah. we were in a gas guzzler pulling a trailer right so like on a live tr long drive like a west coast portion of a tour 
you know, we might need like a hundred gallons of fuel a day. So you got to find and filter all that. So you're burning through filters. The filters were expensive. Like, okay. It's been a few years, but I recall they were maybe like 12 bucks a pop. And we might go through, if we got some really dirty oil, it's all being filtered in line. Like your fuel pump is like pulling it through these filters. So it's a lot of wear on your fuel pump. And if you get some particularly dirty grease in your tank, you'll go through a filter in a day. Uh, and then like if it's breaking or if you don't find the grease, then you're running on diesel anyway. Right. Or if you like stall because the grease was too dirty, you get a little wigged out about it and just like, let's get to the show. You just buy diesel for a few days and like take a break. So it, it, it looked like a long road to actually recoup on the investment of doing that. Yeah. And, and the pain in the ass never resolved itself. I think my advice for eco-conscious bands would be to rent a Sprinter. And if you're really touring that much, buy a Sprinter. Yeah. Because they get like 27 miles per gallon. And they're large enough for your gear without a trailer. And, uh, you know, I might be revealing that I'm like old now, but like, Play through smaller amps. Maybe you don't need, like, to bring the whole world with you, you know? Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, I, I felt like a lot of bands were doing Veggio, like, 10 years ago, and I feel like I don't haven't seen anyone do it in a while. Yeah, I haven't either. Is the world less punk rock now? Or maybe. Why, why is that? Or <laughs> maybe they just realize it's so stupid and it maybe, doesn't work. <laughs> maybe everyone's, maybe it's, like, every, maybe it's that, but maybe it's, like, instant gratification now. Everyone's, like, just... No one wants to be like, let's spend three hours driving around mm-hmm. Chinese restaurants looking for. Yeah, I mean, oil. it's crazy. Um, I, so I was trying to like find some Apollo Sunshine stuff this morning. And I like couldn't really find a lot on Spotify. Yeah, our first two records are right now not like okay. available digitally. It's just, it has to do with like their masters, but where they were originally released on SpinArt, and then one little Indian, when SpinArt went out of business, bought, like, their whole catalog. And then so they had that for the remainder of SpinArt's license on those records. And then when that ended and we regained control of the masters, we sort of just, like, like we're not a band anymore, and we're, we're, I don't want to call iTunes or figure this right, out. Right, right. So it just hasn't been available for a couple of years. But it's actually it's going to be reissued this year for the oh. vinyl pressing and stuff, too. Of the first two records? Mm-hmm. Nice. Yeah. I mean, why do you think that... I felt like you guys got on some cool tours and were such an amazing live band. The records are great. Why do you think it never really, like, <laughs> took... I know it's hard to put your finger on, but I it's, just... Yeah, it's... I don't know. It was... Yeah, because I just feel like... is Yeah, I don't know. It, it was always mind-boggling to me. Like, I just felt like every time, like, it was like the Grog Shop, the Grog Shop, I was like, they should be playing somewhere bigger. There should be way more people here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know. I mean, I still can't put my finger on it. I feel like I'm making better stuff than that now. <laughs> it's like, you know, the haphazard applause, you know, and it minimal fanfare. I don't know. I always just sort of take it personally and go work real hard and try to do a better job. But I know that's not having a ton to do with it because I see some shit that's so bad. Right. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that yeah. does well. But I try. I tend to not focus on that and just look at the stuff that does well that's like, Tame Impala or Jonathan Wilson. I'm like, I just need to work harder. These guys are amazing. That's why they're big, which is true to an extent. Yeah. So you guys had moved upstate at some point into like a farmhouse? Western Mass. Western Mass. Yes, Leverett is near Amherst. Okay. 
that was a super cool period of the band. That was the second best period of the band. The best <laughs> period was like the first year, like prior to making our first record and the year following making our record when James and John were touring with us and we were having all that fun. And, um, and uh, then that period in the farmhouse was cool too. We'd like been out on the road, kissed some girls and we're like, we're the band now. We're hardcore. <laughs> we're an American institution. So we got like our farmhouse and uh, we had a weekly gig at this place, The Harp. And we were still touring a lot at that point. But if we were home every Thursday, we were playing this bar. It was great. We'd play from like 10 till 1 in the morning. Usually have a party. It was only a mile from our house. Um, it was a really fun time. And just like swimming and being outside and then hitting the road and you know, after so much touring and so much, like, city life, it was awesome to, like, get home and just, like, leave the trailer sideways in the driveway and just, like, have so much space to mess around. So then, so Apollo Sunshine, what sort of happened with that and how did you kind of end up in New York? So uh, around that time that we were living in the farmhouse, which was about two years, t- pretty much towards the beginning of that, Jeremy... Uh, met a girl in San Francisco, and he was, like, spending most of his non-touring time out there. So we'd be doing those, like, weekly gigs with other drummers from the area and stuff like that. Made a lot of friends that I still am good friends with. Um, And then Jesse had a girlfriend at that time who was, like, came out to live with us for a little while and re-enrolled in school in Boston, and so he was going to move to school with her. Sean had left the band at that point, moved out to L.A., so it was pretty much just going to be me and this farmhouse, which was obviously, you know, ridiculous. And uh, and our landlord had sold it to this, like, crazy hippie. You know, like, the uptight hippie? Yes. I mean, kind of most of them are, but, like, he sold it to an up- uptight hippie. Who, like, even though he was our landlord, he, he thought that he still had, could be there whenever he wanted. He was like, well, I own it. So he'd be, like, camping out in our yard. Are you serious? <laughs> yeah. He was a total weirdo. <laughs> uh, so so the, that scene was beat. So <laughs> uh, it just kind of felt like, you know, I could move back to Boston, but that didn't, that sort of felt like a lateral move. And we had become a band that, like, lived in different cities. And I was like, that's not, I'm not really down with that. Like, moved out here to be, like, this tight-knit, right. you know, band of gypsies. Uh so at that point, I was like, okay, maybe I'll move to New York. And, like, the band stayed together for another two, almost three years after that. But I think at that point, I was like, I'm going to go put my feelers out and see what other music is out there for me. I remember running into John and him being like, I saw Sam. He was playing in the subway. Yeah. So was that sort of the next your next kind of musical endeavor? That was actually my next musical. It's, like, it's hardly documented when at all. This? I didn't record it or anything. So that would be like 2006. Because I feel like I got, like, maybe I, we were friends on MySpace or f- whatever the thing was then. And I remember you being like, I'm going to be at this subway station, like, at this time. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, I actually paid my rent for a few months doing really? that. Yeah. it was. I called it I Am the Bison, and I played, it's like a one-man band thing. I had, like, a mechanical mannequin hand that hit a snare. And, you know, played the kick drum like you play a kick drum and then strummed an acoustic and had a harmonica and sang like Leonard Cohen and Nina Simone songs and Karen Dalton and stuff like that. It was cool. It was actually when it affected people and was nice. It was like such an amazing cathartic thing to to use that repertoire of songs that is so meaningful to me and be playing it for people that 
in a lot of cases, I was sure had never heard the song before. And you could see people listening to the lyrics and uh, there were just some really cool moments. Yeah, I always think that's like also like so brave. I feel like I can never just like get down there and set up and like just play for people who are just not there to see me. There was some nitty gritty like that too. Yeah, uh, yeah. There were there were times that it was sort of like felt bad, <laughs> but whatever. You know what I mean? Just because you say it's a concert doesn't you can't impose your concert on them, right? right. You just gotta like play the songs. It's there in the air. It's available, and when it like when it becomes a real part of the atmosphere that like is meaningful to them that's amazing because it didn't have to be because it's not like formulaic you know right. so like obviously it doesn't work all the time and then that you know whatever we're all artists we you want to kill yourself <laughs> <laughs> well it's also smart like i feel like it's like especially in new york it's like it's so hard like everything here i feel like is like pay to play or it's like you're you're like you're, it's so hard to make money. I feel like as a musician here, it's like amazing to do something like that where there's like kind of no overhead. Mm-hmm. And when you do get to where you're filling places, you're still sort of preaching to the choir, right? right? So it, it loses some of the meaningfulness of what I mean. It doesn't have to, but it can. Like yeah, music as a way of connecting people. It's a great way to do that. I mean, things have obviously changed so much. I feel like even since like 2006. I mean, do you feel like you like it would be different trying to do that now, or do you feel like it's like I, I never know if I'm older or the world has changed. Yeah. But it seems like the younger people aren't doing all the same stuff I did. Right. Like, guys and girls in their mid-20s seem, like, sort of a lot more 30-something to me now. Like, they're not going to go live in a van for two years, for, or at least the ones I know. Yeah. You know? Some of them are playing in my band now. you know they seem mature they want a nice apartment they know how to decorate they know how to dress themselves like i didn't know any of that stuff when i was that age yeah it's yeah it's crazy it's it's crazy how i feel like time like goes by so fast sort of you know what i'm saying man for sure (laughs) i've been having this like sciatic nerve thing and so I've been taking these muscle relaxers, and I feel like sometimes they make me, like, a little bit loopy. Uh-huh. I feel good. Nice. But <laughs> just in case I say anything weird. That that wasn't weird. I mean, time goes by fast. Yeah. I mean, it gets faster the older you get, right? So I have a five-month-old daughter. Right. And it's crazy, like, the percentage of her life that a day is. And you totally feel a year be, like, not that big a deal as right. you get older and stuff like that. But So you're doing the on the bison thing. Yeah, I was doing that for a little while. I did one like actual show, okay, of that, or maybe two, and uh, mostly just did it in the subways. That was where it was best, and then, um, and then I did it at my sister's wedding reception. I wrote a song for her wedding, and the mechanical hand broke while I was playing it, and then that was the end of it. It was sort of like the emotional climax of "I Am the Bison," and I didn't do it anymore after that. Did you feel like the handbraking was like a metaphorical sign for you to stop doing it? Yeah. Yeah. Something happened. Yeah. Where I was like, I could fix this, but it never really worked that well. And Yeah. Fuck it. There's also a weird thing. <laughs> Is there cussing on this? Dude, it's, okay. go crazy. Cool. Um, I had a one really dark experience in the subway where this like dude out of like a David Lynch movie sort of accosted me. 
like I had gone to some of my normal places to play and there was somebody in all of them. So I like ended up on the subway, like, you know, pretty far away from my house and making lots of transfers with like all this instruments and stuff. So I set up, I start playing and then a guy shows up who apparently this was like his turf and he was like sort of pissed and no one was really digging it that much this day. And he, uh, there's something about him that was like the predator. He was like, like this short, grizzled guy with like a black goatee and like wearing all black. He had like alligator teeth in his black leather hat and like really dark wrinkled skin and uh, a black guitar and these crazy teeth and this grizzled voice. He was like, you don't need all this accoutrement. Just play the song if it's any good. And, like, on this particular day, that, like, really affected me. It's like, yeah, I'm bullshit. This sucks, man. Uh, that guy now lives around the corner from me in the halfway house. No way. Yeah, I see him all the time. He doesn't recognize me, fortunately. And we've actually had some friendly exchanges. I think there might be some bipolar there, actually, from seeing him around the neighborhood. Yeah, I never thought about, I guess, that etiquette. If someone's there, you can't really play. Yeah, well, that's like, I'd moved on three times already that yeah, day, yeah. so I thought it was pretty annoyed that he came up and, like, berated me. So how did kind of the Yellowbirds thing come about? Um, it just started when uh, I made some four-track recordings, two songs that ended up on the record, like the home recordings were, were the final versions, uh, Pulaski Bridge and In Our World. And I wrote them both, like, got my first apartment with my girlfriend, Sarah, who's my wife now. Okay. And, like, had never lived just alone with no roommates, just me and my lady. And it was awesome. Both those songs were just about, like, having a space, being in our little world. And I made them on a four-track, and I was, like, super into Les Paul. And it's got lots of, like, sped-up kind of guitar sounds, things like that. And it just, uh, it didn't sound like Apollo Sunshine to me. And the process is sort of like auditioning songs for the band and then like siphling through and then like combining them with Jesse's songs and like finding the vibe of the record together, like finding that middle ground of like what are us two songwriters talking about rather than just like, I'm just going to say whatever I'm talking about. Um, it just felt like a moment where it was like, it was a, it was a different, a new canon, you know, had begun. So that was like the beginning of Yellowbirds and it just like put up a MySpace page and called some friends about doing some shows with me and like put a band together and then made the rest of that record. And then it was sort of off to the races, did that for a few years. And, and now you're, <clears throat> excuse me. And now you're about to put out a solo album. Right? Yeah. That comes out in April. So it's my first, um, first solo thing. I think Yellowbirds had kind of like, by the time of the release, it had solidified into a new band that it remained like through the next record and all the, all the touring and shows and stuff. And, uh, and then it sort of reached a point where everyone's schedules were pushing and pulling, and it was like it was a band and that everyone was invested and we had the great chemistry together, but still like as a form of expression, it was still like only it was only my baby. And uh since there's not like a ton of money coming in as a result of those shows, it's like scheduling stuff is like maybe a higher priority for me than right. for everyone else. So that was part of going solo was just like I kinda just need to and I got to work too, right? So like our gigs weren't always lining up. And uh, yeah, it was just sort of a point to uh, to to streamline it again. You know, sort of like when I left Apollo Sunshine. 
But it also was a shifting canon, too. Like, I'd, I'd just been working in a different way. I'd been working a lot alone, which I've always really enjoyed. Like, when I look back on making demos for Apollo Sunshine Records and 2, like, really some of the happiest recording moments are, like, not in the studio and not with anyone. It's just the four-track. The song appears on the tape, and it's got this cool vibe, and you listen back, and it's like, oh, I made that. And I never really made a record like that. It was always just remain demos, but I always had this like great affinity for those recordings. And so this is the first record where that pretty much is the record. There are three songs uh, that the Yellowbirds guys play on, but the rest is just alone, recording, playing everything. So you, did you produce it yourself? Mm-hmm. Nice. Yeah, I mean, most of the time, 85% of everything on the record is just no one else in the room. That's amazing. What kind of work do you do outside of music stuff? I don't work outside of music okay. stuff. I produce a lot of records okay. and play on a lot of records. Um, occasionally do like shows, but I haven't had to do a ton of touring other than my own in the last few years. That's great, man. I th- for some reason, I thought when you were like, I got to work too, that it was like, I no, was just that, like, you, like gigs, the projects yeah, yeah. we take. I mean, pretty much everyone in the band, Annie the bassist, uh, works for Science Friday, but the other two guys are working full time as musicians. So that that's what I meant by like, the gigs that pay the bills. Yeah, and, yeah. Have you done any kind of like session type work or anything? Yeah, like that? quite a bit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I played on. Um, well, when my friend John Hill was living here, he was just nominated for producer of the year at the Grammys. No way. Yeah, he would put me on stuff. So I played with Nora Jones when I was working with him, and played on Shakira's record, and did some like CeeLo stuff, and then a lot of like other stuff that I can't remember the name of, and. uh Produce a lot of things for friends, and then their friends call me to make the record sound like that one or whatever. So pretty much busy all the time now. That started about five years ago, and it'd be like maybe one or two projects a year. And now there's pretty much always there's one or two going on. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, I do upstairs with my sister, and we shot something with Nora Jones, which her with her band Puss in Boots, mm-hmm. which was really cool. But I was talking to someone who did that kind of work too, and they were like. They played bass, and I was like, "What was it like?" This person, They're like, "Oh, they weren't there." Like, it's sort of he's sort of you come in and kind of cut your part, and you're not really involved with like. Yeah, most of that big name stuff, it's that way. With Nora, it was cool because we were doing live sessions. Oh, really? It didn't end up being the record, um, which is too bad because I remember it sounding really cool. But either way, it was a super cool experience. It was like, uh, it was a great band. It was DeAnthony Parks on drums. I was playing guitar. She was just singing at the piano. Um, it's where I met my friend Dan Goodwin. He was the engineer on the session, and I've done tons of stuff with him. He mixed both Yellowbirds records and oh, masters nice. a lot of the projects I produce. Um, but you just listen back. She has this cool home studio uh, in that big publishing building in, uh, what's that square called? Over by Joe's Pub. Um, Astor Place. Okay. Yeah, and it's like cool tape machine, cool board. And you just listen back, and there it is. It's like, wow, done. She's an incredible singer. Yeah. That was super cool. Um, What has sort of kept you sort of, I guess, like, making music? I mean, like, obviously, like, you're really good at it, but I feel like so many people sort of from that era, like, got married and have kids like you did, and then sort of were like, like, John, like, I'm going to be a realtor, or I'm going to, like, go back to school or do something. I mean, what's kind of kept you? Because it is, like, it is such kind of a hard lifestyle, Mm-hmm. Um, 
Well, I feel like it's the only thing I'm really qualified to do. Like, if I were to try to get a job at this point, I would just be some schmo doing something that I'm not particularly skilled at. Whereas doing this work makes me feel good about myself. I feel like I know what I'm doing and I'm becoming an expert. And, uh, I mean, it's been hard at times. Like, the, the hardest part was transitioning out of Apollo Sunshine, which was like a meager living, but it was what I was relying on. So when I decided to pull back from that, that first year maybe two years, it was just really hard financially, like letting people know that I was interested and available and doing other things. And then, you know what I mean? It like, you can't just be like, okay, I'm producing records now and available for sessions. You <laughs> right, know what I mean? Right. People just think of you as like the guy in Apollo Sunshine. Oh, he's, he's doing something. I wouldn't call him to like right. be in my band or do anything. Uh, so that was that was a really hard transition, and th- and that was a time when I was like, ugh, maybe this isn't going to play out. You know what I mean? I was, like, looking into all sorts of weird ways to make money. I was like, should I get into teaching? Should I, What should I do? I mean, I guess that's not that weird, but really looking into alternatives. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, stuff started to pick up, you know? Publishing, like, licenses has been pretty good in the last few years, and... And it's just gotten better. The work's gotten steadier. I've been able to, like, start asking for a day rate that is reasonable, you know? Yeah. Whereas, like, at first you have no confidence, right? You're like, oh, whatever you can afford or nothing. (laughs) Totally. And you're also like, I have no money. I assume everyone has no money, right? Right, right. (laughs) When it starts to be sort of a living, you know, you can talk to people that way. It's, It's my job. You know, even though it is a craft and a f- art form, and and I uh, only really work on stuff that I am into musically, which is amazing. Yeah, I wish I could say the same about my writing. I feel like sometimes I get to write about stuff I love, and then sometimes it's like, yeah, and like got to pay the bills. I can see why that would have to be yeah. the case. What? Um, how much do you think is like just musical talent? Was like especially kind of getting to the point you're at now, and how much of it do you think is just like? being just a cool guy to hang out with who isn't like because i feel like that is like a really big element of it as well i'd imagine that's super important i mean the vibe of a session is so huge and you don't necessarily need a star in every chair you know what i mean yeah if you've got like a cool bass player who's a quick study never fucks up you know but he's not like pino paladino but he's like really funny and like makes everyone laugh and when the vibe gets a little weird he's the guy who gets it back on track and is like, no, this is great. Let's just keep going. Cause honestly, that's part of the process. Like you got to keep going. Everyone can get in their head and just derail something that might be going well. But if someone has that positive energy and it's like, let's just see this through, you know, then maybe it ends up great. Or maybe you're like, no, we were on to something when we said this sucks, but like, at least you got something done. Right. You know, you didn't derail something from being great. You know that. You saw it through. You realize it. So I think that kind of vibe is definitely who I want to be surrounded with, and I'm sure everyone feels that way. Do you still play a lot of lap steel? Um, Getting back into pedal steel. Okay. I didn't have one for about a year, Um, and every so often, like, I had sort of lost interest in it. I wasn't, like, particularly drawn to it for a while, and then people would call me and be like, can you play? And I was like, well, I don't have one. And I like, played on some records where we just borrowed a steel. And after that happened a few times, 
I remembered how how beautiful that instrument is and you know felt a little bad that I'd let my skills like drift on it a bit so I got a new one and and have been actually brushing up on it a bit more now that's awesome yeah that's such a cool instrument like I've always wished like I would learn how to play it it's what it's in an open tuning well pedal steel is the coolest because it the the foot pedals and the knee levers bend strings really by half steps or whole steps okay and and you can combine them in ways that uh you pretty much you have all the harmonic possibilities i mean it's not like a piano where you can voice it in any way you choose but you can on a on a pedal steel you can make all sorts of complex chords you know chords with you know extra tension notes and all sorts of things and voiced in like several different voicings and uh it's cool. It's it's a lot more open than than a lap steel, you know. You can actually do like minor seventh chords and minor ninth chords. Interesting. It's, it's awesome. Did you did you end up going to Berkeley? Mm-hmm. Okay. And then did you sort of continue kind of studying kind of theory and all that stuff, or like how did you um, kind of? So I went on. I got a performance scholarship and thought I would go be a jazzer because I'd been taking lessons in Houston from this great guitar player Clayton Dias, who's like just a badass jazz player and he had a real life story to back it up and I thought it was cool and I was into rockabilly and like that sort of having like real skills in jazz would be awesome right for that kind of thing but I was also at the point where I wanted to sort of harmonically expand and then I got to Berkeley and just couldn't find a teacher that I was like really thrilled about I'd, I'd sort of already had my mentorship I guess I'd found the guy and done that so I switched to the production engineering program. Not super interested in it at that time because I was like really focused on being like just making my band be good. But the thinking was I could get some free studio time out of that or whatever. And that was super useful because I learned Pro Tools and I learned what mics, different mics sound like and some techniques. You know, it didn't come back for like 10 years till I was really engineering things for anyone other than myself you know but but the background was good i loved the theory classes though like that was the stuff that i felt like informed my guitar playing uh but more importantly my songwriting you know so do you still like you can read charts and all that stuff yeah chord charts is is no problem and no one really ever asked me to do anything other than that i mean recording it's like if it's a melody you just learn it Right. Unless it's like super long, maybe you learn it ahead of time. But I've never been asked to sight read a melody in my whole life. Do you remember that dude, the teacher at Berkeley, Joe Stump? Yeah. I took lessons with him. Oh, wow. That was incredible. So I've never heard you play guitar. Could you shred? So when I was like 17, 18, I like sort of could. I don't think I can now. I play in a band now, but it's like very. Like we play an open D and it's very like kind of like rhythmic. It's a lot of like fast right hand stuff, but it's not like shreddy. Mm-hmm. But at that point, like I felt like it was like on the border. Like I could almost get it, mm-hmm. but like not quite. And then some of those dudes would just sit down and just be like, like yeah. Remember that guy Gus from Brazil? Yes, he was nasty. Yes, I did a session with that dude. Like I was playing rhythm or something, and he would, had written this song, and he was like, <laughs> dude, I haven't thought of this in so long. He's like, I'm gonna record my parts. I was like, I was like, cool. He's like, everyone get out. Like, he wouldn't let anyone else. This was back then. Yes, this was when we were like teenagers. He was like, no one else can be in the room when I record. Oh we're my just God. like, all right, man. We're all just hanging out. Like, but I guess, yeah. 
Wow. But he was an incredible guitar player. He was really incredible. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think about that dude sometimes. I wonder what he's doing. Yeah, I wonder what he's doing too. It was interesting because I felt like there was such a, like I felt like there was such a big everyone's either into jazz or into like dream theater. Right. Like everyone had like that John Petucci like signature Ibanez. Right. With like the weird Picasso y stuff on it. Right. That's why I didn't stay in the performance yeah. department. I just couldn't find my match. Yeah. I kind of rebelled against like virtuosity too when I got to Berkeley. Like I started writing songs. I started listening to The Clash a lot and Elvis Costello and was like writing songs with no guitar solos or anything like that. And then it was fun when I rediscovered guitar again. It was like, oh, wow. Yeah. Solos yeah. are great. I love solos. <laughs> they are great. But yeah, it's true. I feel like a lot of those virtuoso guys, it's like, it's impressive to watch, but it's, I feel like it's really hard to make it musical in the sense of like, involving other people or making it like a complete idea it's more it can be just kind of show-offy yeah that was a big step for me in yellow birds like when i switched from apollo sunshine to yellow birds like in apollo sunshine we had a lot of guitar and keyboard solos in our shows but it would always be over like a one chord groove or vampy kind of thing and and it, it you know other than like the dynamics of like the thing which can be awesome on one chord it can be totally great but I, I sort of missed the like drama of a great chord progression, and th- so that was a shift in Yellowbirds that was to like really start playing over changes, so to speak, like take the guitar solos over the first chord progression and like be really melodic about it. And I think, I think I, I instantly and still get like a lot less praise as a guitar player than I did in Apollo Sunshine because it was just like flashy solos over right. one chord. It's just like, you know, but. But I think it's so much more musical, and I'm more proud of what I'm doing now. But it's definitely gotten subtler, so yeah. even harder to make fans than ever. <laughs> <laughs> what are what are uh, Jesse and Jeremy up to? Jeremy's got a studio in Oakland called Coyote Hearing that's, like, pretty flush. And he's been producing and engineering a lot of stuff. Plays in a psychedelic band in San Fran called Sandy's. It's really cool. Okay. Jesse... Is kind of like the mayor of Cambridge. He's still in Boston. Um, yeah, plays with a lot of cool, cool people, and has been working on his own stuff for like actually years. He's been working on a couple of songs for years, and I think they're finally almost finished. Yeah, we were up there. We played at this place, Great Scott, there mm-hmm. um, a couple months ago. I love Boston. I haven't really that, that summer was like really the only time I ever spent a lot of time there. And I felt like I would just go to, like, Little Stevie's Pizza. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Place is nasty. <laughs> I wonder if it, it can't be as, like... I, but I also feel like I would go to all these hardcore shows at, like, the Middle East downstairs. Mm-hmm. And it would be... Like, they'd have to stop the shows, like, three or four times because of fights. Mm-hmm. It was, like... And I wasn't scared. When I was, like, 17, you know, like, you're not scared of anything. Mm-hmm. I'd just be standing next to the pit, like, people getting beat up. I'd be mm-hmm. like, oh, this is fun, whatever. Like, if I had gone in there now, I would be like, no way I'm hanging out here. Right. I know, it's funny, like, when I look back on some of the places I was. Like, in Houston, for some reason, a lot of the shows I went to, skinheads would be there. And, like, one time, I sort of got, like, circled by a few, and I can't remember why, and they were, like, pushing me around. I was like, oh, man, am I about to get fucking curbed or what? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it would get ugly. What were you, were you, did you live in Houston? Yeah, I grew up in Houston. Oh, I didn't realize that. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. So you were in Houston up until college, basically? Mm-hmm. Yeah. For some reason, that's like, 
did we not I feel like Texas is such a crazy place. It is a crazy place. <laughs> and I feel like everyone I know is like, yeah, Austin's cool. It's like, yeah, Austin's cool, but like that's such a small part of Texas. A lot of Texas is cool. Uh and it, it you know, in ways other than the way Austin's cool. Yeah. That's like that's how everything's cool now, right? right? You know what I mean? Like it's like Portland cool or I mean I'm talking like I'm above it. Me and my wife were very, very close to moving there. Dude, I know. This year. I, I was too oh, before, like before I moved here. But I, it's like I feel like if I want to move, I want to go somewhere that'll. I feel like at those places, it's almost like too late or something. Like everyone knows about it. It is. Yeah. Where do you think the next cool place is? Like Detroit or something? I don't know. It, it doesn't matter for me. It's I'm <laughs> too late. I'm too vested in what I'm doing. You know what I mean? I'm not gonna go like. Like, here in New York and with the people I've been working with over the last decade, you know, there's, like, five of the most amazing drummers you've ever heard that I can call and be like, can you play tomorrow night? My normal drummer's not, yeah. you know, feeling well or whatever. Same with bass. Same with keyboards. Same with guitar. Same with singers. Same with every horn or stringed instrument. It's like, if I go to Detroit, like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know if that'll be the case. Is it is it having a kid stuff more difficult here, or is it just sort of one of those things where it's just like you kind of deal with it and it normalizes? You know, in some ways, that's that's like why we were looking at Austin. We we're like, oh, having a kid here is going to suck. It's going to get so expensive, which it has. Right. But it's going to get expensive anywhere. We're going to need a bigger apartment. That's going to be a financial disaster, which it is, but <laughs> I don't know. It hasn't been yet. And... uh one good thing about it is, you know, people in the suburbs, when they have a kid, they're like, oh, it's so isolating. Like, I never go out anymore. I never do anything. Like, here our friends are really nearby. You know, we live in a neighborhood with lots of our friends and just run into them on the street. And, like, yeah. people come over to hang out just for a few hours. You know, you don't have to make, like, some big plan. So that part of it's been really nice. Like, it's hard to imagine having as tight-knit a community somewhere else at this point to go yeah. there and try to start with a kid and like you know try to pick up the career somewhere else yeah i feel the same man it's like i feel like i've been getting a little restless sometimes but i'm always just like where would i i feel like if i move somewhere i'd get there and just be sitting on my couch i'd be like now what do i do mm -hmm. like whereas here it's like there's tons of stuff to do and if i choose not to do it it's like strangely reassuring that i know i can just like go outside and like find a friend or someone's bartender totally. and like i don't know how to meet people like, the way I make friends is I, I go, hey, man, for, like, 10 years. <laughs> and then uh, eventually we're at, like, someone's wedding together. And we're like, oh, yeah, we go way back. And then we start talking and then we're friends. Like, that's sort of, that's sort of what it takes. Yeah, you, you don't know? want to rush into friendship. That's right. <laughs> um, and do you still ever talk to John? Well, just when I see him. But yeah. I do see him around. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that is – yeah, that era was just – such a crazy time. I, feel, I remember also when you guys were at my house, I had this like huge CD collection and you guys are going through and like someone in your band was like, this is cool, man, but like, where are all your Beatles CDs? <laughs> I was like, I, I don't know. <laughs> that must have been Jesse. <laughs> I think it was Jesse. <laughs> I feel like I was like being very judged on it. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> um, so solo record comes out. Are you going to be doing like uh, any touring kind of to support I it? hope so. Yeah, I, I need to book all that stuff yeah. still which you know i just get busy in that part of it <laughs> it's just like a lot of work 
But yeah, we'll be doing some stuff. I know we're going to do Pickathon, which is a festival outside of Portland in August. So we'll probably do a tour around that. And, um, you know, at bare minimum, there'll be like a release show here in New York and probably Boston and some other places like that. But I think we'll probably do a bit more touring this time around. Are you So you're going to have guys backing you with the solo stuff? Yeah, yeah. Okay. We played last Thursday the first time and we're actually playing tonight at oh, yeah? Shea Stadium. Okay. Yeah, it's a three-piece band in addition to me. So drums, bass, and keyboards. Got like four keyboards and it's like yes or something. We nice. got like a mega synth structure <laughs> uh, dude i would go i'm seeing father john misty tonight oh nice rough trade but i've been to chase Stadium before it's cool yeah yeah oh i would like to see father john misty i didn't know that was going on he's playing yeah tonight at rough trade and he's playing somewhere set on valentine's day too oh maybe i'll go to that yeah i think it's a bowery or something where do you find out things are happening i feel well, like i always hear the next day that's yeah cool will happen the only reason why is like because because i write about music that it's like I just get press releases from everyone, so mm-hmm. I'll be like, "There'll be a Father John Misty new album, blah blah blah." Here's his dates, and I'll look at it, and then I'll like put it on my calendar, and then I'll be like, "Hey, can I go to the show?" And usually it works out. Yeah, but um, yeah, that's that's the only reason I know. But even with that, all the time, like someone will be like, "Dude, the show last night. Like, why weren't you there?" I'm like, "I don't know." It's especially here. It's so hard to keep track of everything. Yeah, yeah. Like every night, there's something massive. Yeah, um, I'm trying to think what else. So where can people kind of, they can get the record kind of once it comes out? Uh, hopefully record stores. Yeah. <laughs> There's still some of those. I, I think, think it'll be in some of those. Uh, it's on this label, Easy Sound. It's a new okay. label in California. Um, so you can definitely order it from them or download it on iTunes or all the usual places. Yeah, that's ex- that's so exciting, man. Yeah, I'm stoked on this record. I feel like it's... It's definitely my the best thing I've done so far. Yeah. Well, kind of by a long shot, though. Really? Yeah. I really, I like it more than, than anything I've done. Do you feel like you generally feel that way about the most recent thing you've done or not necessarily? Um, or does this feel just kind of different? Usually, but this does feel yeah. different. You can tell, I can tell when something's haunting me about a record. You know what I mean? Um, Haunting you in the sense like it it bugs you or that like... Yeah, there's something not quite right about it. Like like the my last record, I sort of... There was something inside of me that I was like, I don't know. <laughs> I just didn't... You know what I mean? Just something... Something felt unsure. And I remember saying, no one's going to like this. And you know, some people loved it. Right. Well, th- it's interesting for you to say that because I feel like a lot of people feel more that way about like a solo thing where there aren't as many people where it's like just you. You're like, eh, this is no one was here to be like, don't do that. Yeah. Uh, and and th- I think this record benefits from that. Yeah. Yeah. I think just just cool shit happened fast, you know, and it it, it wouldn't have with a group of people making decisions or like making room for each other or the traditional like things you do as a band i think it just wouldn't have stacked up as well and there's a simplicity to it it's like really complex songs and forms on a lot of stuff but like pretty simple instrumentation you know there's not a ton going on so everything sounds bigger to my ear there's like more space in the music things breathe and you can really hear everything it sounds good to me. <laughs> Is there any shredding on it? Yeah. 
Yeah, there's more shredding than I've done in a while on it. Nice. But live, there's even more shredding. Dude, awesome. <laughs> That's what I like to hear. Wow, that was fun, huh, Stephen? I, I enjoyed it. I know you weren't I just actually enjoy here. listening. It's kind of weird now that that I'm, I'm, you know, as you said before, tangentially involved. I love that word. That I, no, I, I don't, I'm, I don't I'm more think of a that fan of the podcast now than I am on it. <laughs> I don't think that's true. I think you are an integral part of the podcast. It's what? just cool to it's cool to listen to the conversations and, and see where things go. And uh, one of my favorites is is whenever whatever podcast happens when Brad is involved. When it turns to like sound and things, you can almost hear this switch going off in his head. And you can see how excited he gets yes. to talk about production and stuff. That is true. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Sadly, Brad couldn't be in this one, but we did get mm. a lot very into sort of guitar and, and tech stuff. Um, Dude. But Brad's, Brad's a busy guy. He, he's got a job, which I've, I've heard can be very time consuming. I've heard as well. You know, um, that's really uh, great. Now, Jonah, uh, what, what can we hear you doing or, or read about you of late? Uh, well, I have a, I have a cover story on Fall Out Boy, um, for Alternative Press's 30th anniversary issue, which wow. is, is either out now or is going to be out very soon after this comes out. I know you can pre-order it. Um, so it was cool. I spent, uh, three or four days with them, uh, a couple months ago. I went to the floor of the New York Stock Exchange with them. They rang the closing bell. I went to Vintage Vinyl to a signing. I rode around with them a lot and... It's long, you know, it's like 4,000 word story And I'm wow. really happy how that came out uh, United Nations just announced some dates With Coliseum um, Who are an awesome band uh, We have a podcast with Ryan Patterson Coming out soon as well And those are going to be in the Midwest In um, late June Playing Cleveland, Chicago Detroit, Columbus And Pittsburgh So you have jobs, you got it going on Yeah, yeah, no, that's true um, But yeah, so that's sort of where you can find by me oh and uh new sound advices are always coming out i think ah so good we have one one coming out actually today but that you'll be able to watch when this is out one with the vamps um which is really fun to do and you get to see my sister do her um incredible british accent once again she is very smart oh by the way if you're if you're on a computer right now go over to um yahoo and check out sprint fan connection that's the stuff that i've been doing uh, for a bit, and it's loads and loads of fun talking with everybody from Big Sean to Megan Trainer to Flogging Molly. It's glorious. I like how we plug all the stuff we're working on at the very end when just that one guy who always tweets at us is still listening. As long as he's tweeting and sends us a dollar. Oh, and also, me and Stephen were also just interviewed by Chris from Let's Chat Podcast. Oh, God, so nice. And he is the awesomest dude ever, and check out his podcast, and I think ours are going to be up soon, and he's trying to get Brad to do it, which I think we need to pressure Brad into. Well, that's the thing is, no, 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 we have to talk to Brad first. Oh, yeah, that's true. We should do an episode where Brad is I just want to do an episode with Brad, but then, but I want to, like, I want to, um, I think it would be great to just have him in here and talk the old East Village thing, but see, Brad... Brad knows where the bodies are buried. That's the thing about Brad. <laughs> yeah, Brad's a little bit he's he's a little secretive. He's pretty cryptic cuz he yeah. he knows stuff. Yeah. I'll never I, we brought it up so many times, but if you if there was just a camera in the room to see mine and Jonah's expression when Brad just casually referred to Tim Armstrong as lint. It's true, man. Brad's a legit <laughs> legit punk dude. He's a powerful dude. He is. Well, there you go. Check us out at uh, Going Off Track on the Twitter. If you want to hit us up on Facebook.com at Going Off Track. Uh, dollar a podcast, people. Go to our website. Click on that donate. 
and um, send it on over. Send it over. Yeah, check us out on Twitter, blah, blah, blah. Um, and we will be back next week. Right on. Right on. Right on.